All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the world of Kabbalah. This class is going to be the class of all classes. I'm telling you, this class, this is it. This is until next week. But this class right now, this is the end of all classes or the beginning of all classes. Because tonight we explore the origins of darkness. The origin, the spiritual origin of darkness and pain and suffering and see where this comes from on a spiritual plane. It's going to be highly instructive and, uh, and very powerful. But first, I want to begin with the story. The story goes that there are three recruits that are looking to become police officers or maybe de- detectives. And so, you know, the intake officer meets them and he says, I need to apply the standard test. What's the standard test? I'm going to show you a picture of a suspect for 10 seconds. After 10 seconds, the picture goes away. And you have to say exactly what you recall as far as identifying features to identify the suspect and the perp. Done. So individual number one gets, uh, uh, gets started, shows him a picture, 10 seconds, 10 seconds ends. What do you remember? He says, easy. I would be able to spot this guy anywhere and I'll tell you how. This guy, hold on one second. Hold on, hold on. Just making a quiet background. You guys can unmute whenever. So he says like this, easy to spot this guy. He has one eye. Guy's like, I showed you a profile picture of the suspect. He's one eye. I'm a sugar. This is next. Second guy. 10 seconds, picture goes up. What do you remember? What do you recall? He says, easy to identify. This guy only has one ear. He's like, are you kidding me? One ear? It's the same picture, by the way. It's like, you guys, are you serious? It's a profile picture. Okay, third guy. He's like, you better not say he has one eye or one ear. It's a profile picture. And the guy studies it for 10 seconds. He says, look, I have, I have clarity on this, on, this, on this guy. He wears contact lenses. Oh, he says, interesting, contact lenses. Let me look at this guy's file and see if you're right. Looks at the file. Indeed, it's true. This guy wears contacts. He says, that's amazing. That's amazing. How did you know that? He says, that was easy. I mean, with only one eye and one ear and half a nose. I mean, how can he wear glasses? <laughs> all right. Look, not all my jokes are recycled. Sometimes you get some original content. Um, Excuse me. So as I mentioned earlier, our topic tonight, yeah, thanks. Our topic tonight is the cosmic origin of darkness. And as we'll see tonight, this is a very powerful and uh, a very mystical class um, that's going to explore what we call in Kabbalah the tzimtzum. Tzimtzum is going to be a word that you're going to need to learn tonight if you don't already know it. Um, but we'll, we'll get into that as this class unfolds. To reset kind of the room because it's been a few weeks. So what I want to do is kind of uh, go quickly through the objective of the course as well as what we covered in the previous four sessions. So the objective of the course is to chart the spiritual architecture of existence using the wisdom of Kabbalah and at the same time chart the the soul architecture or the architecture of the soul of the human soul also using the wisdom of Kabbalah and these two things of course are parallel. Um, What exists in the universal sense, also exists 
in the individual sense, right? The macrocosm on the left side, this is the chart, right? Macrocosm on the left, microcosm on the right. It if it exists in the cosmic structure of creation, it exists within, on a cellular level. You see what I did there? Cellular, yeah. All right, anyway, so that is, uh, that's the overall objective. In lesson number one, oh, and to do this, we're starting from the bottom up, right? Starting from the foundation and moving our way up, lesson by lesson, we are scaling the heights. So here's what we did in lesson one. We explored the lowest three worlds on, on the cosmic side on the left side, the three worlds of Bria, Yetzira, and Asiya, creation, formation, and action. And we explained that these are three progressively devolving uh, levels of existence whereby uh, creation becomes self-identifying and separate, as it were, from the source. It sees itself as an I and does not see itself as part of the greater collective or the divine, uh, the divine whole. Um, on, a soul, on, a, on the soul level, we said that these three worlds correspond to the three garments of the soul, thought, speech, and action that are not the soul itself, but rather modalities by which and through which the soul is expressed. And like the three worlds of Bria, Yitzir, and Asiya that are separate from the Godhead, as it were, these three levels are not, are not essentially intertwined with the soul itself, which means that you can feel one way, but behave in a different way, in, the, in a positive sense, right? You can feel, or you can want to say something that maybe is not so complimentary, but you can instead choose to say something complimentary. Why? Because it's not a pure reflection of what's inside. There is a gap, there is a separation between what's inside and the way, it's man the way it may be manifest outside. That was lesson one. In lesson two, we climbed up from the worlds of Biyah, the three lower worlds, to the fourth, to the world above it, which is the world of Atzilut. Atzilut is the world of emanation. The world of emanation is marked by the ten Svirot, lights in vessels. The ten Svirot are the ten divine energies um, that form the very fabric of creation or the paint by which this masterpiece of existence is, um, is, is uh is painted, right, is, uh, is, is created, and that is reflected in our soul with these sa very same ten energies. We have three intellectual powers, Chachma, Bina, and Dat. We have seven emotional energies, and we also discussed in lesson two how by recognizing um, which soul power illuminates and shines most predominantly within us, we can understand perhaps our mission in life. That was lesson two. In lesson number three, we went beyond the world of Atzilut, and explored the Ar Sof, the infinite light. And we said, was that somebody at the door? Thank you. Thank you. So we said that the Ar Sof is the infinite light. It's that blank canvas um, from which flows all differentiation. And we explained that it's the Ar Sof that powers all of creation, and it really stands above creation to power everything. Um, we, the corresponding energy within the soul is desire or willpower, the idea of rutzon. And we explained that when you want something, when you really want something, and I'll tell you what I want, what I, no, right? So when you really want something, so what that does is it really, it, it, it forces everything inside of you to conform. So it shapes your ideas, it shapes your feelings, what you want, you will make sure that that gets done. So that was Ratzon, leveraging the power of 
human desire to get things done. And in lesson four, which was two weeks ago, we explored the mysterious dimension of tohu, the realm where lights and vessels did not cooperate, the realm that really exploded or imploded because of the dissonance between light and vessel. The light was all light, didn't, could not uh, interact with vessel. The vessel was all vessel, could not interact with the light. And because of that, that reality, that reality broke apart. And <coughs> due to that breaking apart, um, the shattered vessels form the fabric of what it is that we are supposed to fix. Within us, we also have two souls, the godly soul, that's the fixer soul, and then you have the other soul, the animal soul, which is the soul that needs to be fixed. It's kind of like HGTV, right? You know HGTV, right? Everyone knows, right? Fixer upper? Yeah. Or they have like a thousand shows, right? Or any something like... Barbie Yes. Flip or flop, I don't know, whatever their alliteration goes, right? So all that stuff. So base, oh, um, Fixer Upper is, what's the one with Joanne and, uh, Joanna and, and, and Chip. Chip. Chip and Joanna. Joanna. Ah, love those guys. Anyway, so, so the, the animal soul is a project. The godly soul has a task to fix that, to fix the animal soul, to tame the animal soul. And that is, uh, that's, that's, and that's, what really our life is about. Today in lesson five, we're going to address one of the most difficult and painful questions that human beings ask, which is, if God is good, then why is there so much pain in this world? If God is good, why is there so much darkness? And this is true on an individual level. This is true on a universal or collective level. And of course, you know, we just look around at the world today and there's a lot of pain and a lot of challenge. And to make sense of it, to make sense of this, we're going to go all the way back to the root of darkness, to the spiritual and cosmic source of darkness, or as it's known in Kabbalah, and this is a term I mentioned before, we're going to go all the way back to what we call the tzimtzum. The tzimtzum is the contraction. We'll explain this divine contraction. We're going to explain uh, what is tzimtzum, what's the purpose of tzimtzum, what it does, why it's needed, and how it affects our lives on so many levels, so let's begin. So before we analyze what the tzimtzum is and how it works, let's better appreciate why tzimtzum is needed in the first place. And in order to do this, in order to do this, here's what we're going to, uh, here, here's how I want to start this conversation. You know, in lesson two, we spoke about um, the world of Atzilut, which is on the map, right, this, the green, the green area, right, this, this world, 10 svirot, lights and vessels. And we spoke about, in lesson three, how you have the Arain Sof, the infinite light, that is um, ultimately the source of the projection of these 10 finite energies. And we kind of glossed over the transition between infinite and finite. It's kind of like in the previous sessions, we were in a, in a helicopter looking at the bigger picture. You know, there's, there's infinite light that then you know, steps down into finite expression, infinite light then produces 10 defined energies, the world of Atzilut, and then that continues to evolve into the worlds that we know and love. And all of that is how we explained it previously. But today we're going to analyze that. It's like we're landing the helicopter and doing a bit of a deep dive and trying to understand how exactly does that transition happen between infinite and finite? How do you go from Ar Ein Sof, which you might recall means the infinite light, 
into finite, defined, measurable, specific dimensionality. How do you go from infinite to finite, from infinite light to 10 defined and, uh, and, and, and compartmentalized energies? How does that actually work? Now, you could say, well, God can do anything, including go from infinite to finite, and that's true. However, there is a process, a process by which that unfolds. And Kabbalah uh, gets into the nitty-gritty of this process, and, that, and, and it's, it's fascinating, and it's very important. So to give you an example of this, um, so let's do, let's do a, um, a historical example just to get a sense of how this, um, of how this might work. So imagine, <coughs> imagine you stepped into a time machine. So I, when I think of time machines, what do I think of? You guys read my mind. Let's go. What am I thinking of? DeLorean. Thank you very much. Very good. Now what am I thinking about? I'm kidding. Right, so DeLorean. Now, this is true. I just did a road trip to Texas. It's about 12 hours, you know, back and forth. And um, every time, are we on camera? Shoot, yeah. Um, every time the speed limit was 90, and I was going 88, two miles below the speed limit, because that's how safe of a driver I am. But any, every time I hit 88, I'm thinking, right? I'm thinking, like, maybe, just maybe, this Chrysler Pacifica minivan might just, might just, who knows, perhaps, might just become a DeLorean. And maybe, just maybe, that DeLorean will uh, take us in time. So, but imagine if you went into a time capsule and were able to dial it back to the year 1750. Imagine, 1750. What would you see? Here, like, not right here, but like these here parts. What would you see? What would it look like? 1750. Good. What else? Who are we under? The British rule, right? We are a colony of Britain, and that's the way it is. Now, if you get back into the lorry and hit 88 again, and fast forward to 1800, what are you going to see? What else? Who's America under? Ooh, I've said too much, right? Yeah, boom, United States of America. What a difference, right? We used to be, right? We used to be a colony under British rule, and now an independent country, United States of America. It's a drastic shift. And you know, anytime you see a drastic shift, you know that something drastic had to happen to make that shift happen because it didn't just happen on its own. If you have one state of reality, and then you have another state of radically different reality, you know one thing, that in between those realities, something big happened. Same thing is true spiritually. If you have infinite light, and then the next stage you have finite reality, you know that in between infinite and finite, something major happen. In the language of Kabbalah, we call that Tzim Tzum. It's one word. I'm just saying it very slow. I'm doing the Sesame Street version. Tzim Tzum. Tzim Tzum. Right. You get what I'm saying. Right. Tzim Tzum. First of all, it's a great word to say. Right? Isn't it? I'm not wrong here. It's, it's a lot of fun to say. Tzim Tzum. And Tzim Tzum is the idea 
It is the idea of divine contraction that allows for finite reality to emerge. We, there's one text that is the definitive text about Simsum. It comes from the teachings of Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, or Rabbi Isaac Luria, known as the Arizal, the Holy Ari. He was a Kabbalist that lived hundreds of years ago. His teachings were written down by his student, Rabbi Chaim Vital, in a book called Eitz Chaim, The Tree of Life. Take a look, page 143, text number one. Again, this is the definitive text explaining that Simtsum, which in Kabbalah is one of the major, major, major ideas of Kabbalah. If, you, if you're studying Kabbalah and you want to know what's going on in Kabbalah, you got to know Simtsum. Take a look at text number one. Oded, please get us started. Now, I, I'll say this again. This is so important. I want, you, I want everyone, please, to pay attention to the text, the text one on page 143. We're going to analyze every single line. Take it away. Before Atzilut was emanated and before the creation were created, a simple divine light filled all of reality. It had no aspect of beginning or end. It is called O and Sof, the infinite light. When it arose in his will to create the world and to emanate Atzilut, he contracted his infinite light and an empty space emerged. He then projected downward a single straight line from his circle, circular light, develop, develop, developing into this empty space. Within the empty space, he emanated, created, fashioned, and made all the worlds. Thank you. So let's break this down. One, thank you. Let's break this down one step at a time. Okay? Hey, Alex. So we start off, let's start, we have three paragraphs. Let's go step one, step two, step three. What is step one? Step In step one or stage one, what do we have? We have the Ar Ein Sof. The Ar Ein Sof, as we said previously, is the infinite light. And I said a few weeks ago, why is it, why is it Ar Ein Sof? What does that mean? Either it's the Ar of the Ein Sof, either it's the light of the infinite one, i.e. God, or the light itself is infinite, and the truth is both are true. The, the fact that it's the light of the infinite God makes the light itself infinite because light is but a projection of whatever that source is. So if it's an infinite source, the light will also have an infinite nature. Done. So we have the infinite light. Now, what's the problem with the infinite light? Seems like there's no problem. There is a problem if you're expecting something else to emerge. What's, think about it. Infinite light implies that it's taking up, help me out here, finish my sense, all the space. There's no space for anything else. So if something is expanding and filling up all potential space and actual space, well then guess what? Nothing else can exist. If I somehow, right, take up all the parking spaces, like by putting up a tent, I'm kidding, right, if I take up all the spaces, guess what? You can't park, because I took up all the spaces. Where does this where does this exactly come from? Like, was this given to us like this is how it is? Because it's it's very it's like very specific. Highly specific. About like physics and yes. And all that. So like, is this something that you want to know where the Arizal got it from? Like where did they they pulled it from 
this and then they came up with this kind of... How it's a good work? question. Kabbalah means receive. The understanding of Kabbalah is all of this is received wisdom. Either going all the way back, either going all the way back to Sinai or to other forms of divine revelation. It says the Arizal studied with none other than Elijah the prophet himself. So where do you get it from? This is coming from Anahai. This is wisdom from Anahai. So again, let's just reset these ideas. We have three stages here, three major ideas. So, major, so, so stage one is you have God's infinite light. Again, the nature of infinite light is by its very um, under, by, by the very name that it has, infinite light takes up infinite space. It's expanding everywhere. Now, none of that is a problem until, help me out, when does it become a problem? Good. Second paragraph. When it arose in his will to create, now you have a problem. Because until you want something else, you can take up all the space, right? The moment, I mean, think about it. You live in an apartment by yourself. You can take up all the space. The moment someone moves in and you got a problem, where are they going to go, right? If I'm taking up all the space, so where are they going to go, right? Where are they going to put their stuff? I took up all the space. So when it arose in his will to create the worlds and to emanate at Silut, which is the first world, so what does God do before that? He contracted his infinite light. The Hebrew word for contracted is tzimtzum. By the way, that doesn't mean he wrote a document, a legal document. That's not what contracted means here. Correct? You with me on this? Contracted means shrunk. Right? Remember that movie with uh, the Jewish guy, Honey, I Contracted the Kids? <laughs> Kidding. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right. Contraction means you shrink. Right? Tzimtzum. It's like... You make yourself smaller. So if you're taking up all the space and there's no room for anything else, so to make room, what do you do? You consolidate, right? You move your stuff. Give me a second. You move your stuff from your, let's go back to the apartment example. Your stuff is everywhere because it's your place. But now someone else is moving in. So what do you do? Simtsum. You contract, you consolidate your stuff to one space to allow for the other person to have the other space. Look at the language in the second paragraph, text 1143. He contracted his infinite light and an empty space emerged. Guess what's going to happen in that empty space? Can you all guess? Boom. However, empty space itself doesn't constitute creation. All empty space is, is, is making room, right? That's not the other. That's just making room for the other. So now what has to happen? Imagine if God contracts his infinite light, makes space, and then re-emerges with infinite light. What's, what's the problem? There's no space anymore. So that's why paragraph 3 says, what does God do? He then projected downward a single straight line. In Hebrew, we call this the kav. It's also an important line, uh, a word to know. The kav. From his circular light, we talked about that in a previous class, Circular implies infinite, right? The infinite light is a circular light devolving into this. <coughs> Excuse me. Give me one second. Malfa Clem, talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> <coughs> devolving into this empty space. 
right? So what you have is the contraction. So there's infinite light. There's no space for anything else. Contraction. Now there's empty space. There's room, right? There's room for the other. But the other has to emerge. How does the other emerge? It can't come from the infinite light. Because then the infinite light is, again, going to take up all the space. So in this empty space, there's a single straight line. Again, it's not literal, but a line of divine light that is now limited and finite that evolves, that comes down into this empty space. And that projects and that kind of gives rise to, right, within this empty space, look at the last line, he emanated, created, fashioned, and made all worlds. You see there are four terms? What do you think those refer to? The four worlds. Emanated, Atzilut. Created, Bria. Fashioned, Yetzira. And made, Asiya. These are the four worlds that emerge in that empty space, utilizing the Kav. You guys with me on this? Yes? Make sense? God fills, step one, God fills all the space. Step two, God contracts, makes some empty space. Step three, within that empty space, there's a projection of light because you have to have some positive energy or positive uh, light creating something, but limited creation happens through the projection of a limited light from the infinite source, but now you have a limited light projecting, and that creates worlds of limitation. Yes? What's it going to use? Oh, good. You're asking the big question. Why 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 need any of this? It sounds like you're trying to say, okay, this is the way the world was created. It's almost like we're simplifying it. Listen, listen. You could ask this on the whole thing. It's like, why do you need any of this? Hold on one second. You need all these levels of progress, all these iterative dimensions. No, you don't. God, world, boom. That's how we... That's how we think of it, right? When we're learning as children or pre-Kabbalah, that's how we think. There's God and the world, and that's it. God can make a world. Why not? Kabbalah says, yes, of course, but how does it happen? There's a process. Now, the question is, does, why would God need a process? The answer is God doesn't need a process, but he chose a process. Why would he choose a process? So Kabbalah says, for two reasons. Number one, to make the process of creation understandable to us, so that we have some Havana, so we have some, in Yiddish, farshtan, we have some sort of um, grasp on what's going on for our benefit. Number two, if God creates utilizing a step-by-step ladder system, we can climb back up. If he crosses the uncrossable gulf by just snapping his divine fingers, as it were, then we can't climb up. It's him throwing down that ladder that allows us to climb back all of these steps. So anyway, so the way God creates is utilizing this process. Again, infinite light, then tzimtzum and makam panoi, the contraction in the empty space, then the kav, the finite line of divine light that then fashions, forms, creates the four worlds. Yes? Yes? Yes, yes? Good? Yes, yes, yes. I just want you to know, is the empty space the tohu? No, no. Tohu is something. Tohu is a something that wasn't sustainable, but is not the empty space. Tohu comes after the empty space, after the kav. So you have the infinite light, which is also likened to the circle. You have the tzimtzum and empty space. Then you have the kav, and then everything emerges from there. So again, in the map, 
you can see that simsum, harishon, the first simsum, which is this, I don't know, gray triangle, downward pointing thing, where it has a broad top and then it narrows down. I guess that's a simsum, the contraction, and that produces everything we've set up until now. Now, very important, very important stuff. Um, uh, this is a major, major qualification of everything we've set up until now. It would seem, and you and I would be forgiven for believing, based on everything we just read and discussed, that the tzimtzum is literally God contracting himself, and the empty space is literally an empty space. However, although there are some Kabbalists that subscribe to that way of thinking, the way the phrase, that phrase is called tzimtzum kipshuto, which would mean? Simple. Or is it word? Literal, literal, literal tzimtzum, right? Kipshuto means literal tzimtzum. Some say that that's the way, but most Kabbalists, and the way, the, the line that we take uh, today is that the tzimtzum is lo kipshuto, is not literal. It's rather conceptual. And to explain this, I want to use an example I used a few weeks ago at our Sunday morning Kabbalah Cafe class. We do a Kabbalah class every Sunday morning, 10.15 a.m. to 11.30. Y'all are invited. It's a fantastic class. I spoke a few weeks ago in that class about the Kabbalah of Copperfield, the Kabbalah of David Copperfield. And I explained, we discussed what happened in April 1983. In April 1983, David Copperfield goes ahead and has a live televised special in New York City. The Empire, um, Liberty, uh, Liberty. Set, but what do you call it? The Liberty Island? Is that what it's called? Ellis Island? Ellis Island? Yes. No, it's, no, it's Liberty, Liberty Island. Liberty, 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 Liberty. That's something else. Anyway. This class, not sponsored by Liberty Mutual. So you have the Statue of Liberty. And there he is, and there's like, I don't know, a few dozen people gathered. And, I mean, I looked up the footage recently. It's super grainy, whatever. Man, people were all like grainy back then. Anyway, so he puts up a curtain. You see the Statue of Liberty? Puts up a curtain. He does all these random hand motions, right? He's all randomly hand motioning. The curtain falls down. Statue of Liberty is gone. Wow, it's amazing. Like everyone's losing their mind. Everyone's losing their mind. They're interviewing people. They're like, if I wasn't here, I wouldn't believe it. Like, this is amazing, but I'm here. This, I'm holding, I'm pretending to hold the mic just so you know what I'm doing here, right? I'm not eating an ice cream cone, right? So this is amazing. It's like, wow, what happened to the Statue of Liberty? It's, okay. The current goes back up, right? Smoke and magic. Comes back down again, Statue of Liberty is back, special over, David Copperfield is a genius. Now, how did he do it? Well, he made it disappear. Joking. It's, there was a revolving platform, it turned, and then the angle, you know, sorry for giving away the secret from like 83, 40 years ago? Yeah, it's time, right? You can also Google it and see how he did it. The point is, the point is, that he didn't actually make the Statue of Liberty vanish, but he made it look like it vanished. That symptom could be understood one of two ways. Either God vanishes 
from that space, creating an empty space, or God creates the illusion of vanishing from that space to essentially accomplish the same thing, which is allow space for otherness to emerge in, a, in an allegedly absent or divinely devoid space. Allegedly divinely devoid space. Which is a greater accomplishment? For God to actually disappear or for God to be there, but we don't see God? I'm going to vote number two. There, there are other theological problems with saying that Simpson is literal. The theological problems are, we'll see them inside. Text uh, 2a and 2b, yes. Would you always say that you still see God? And I mean, like, his, his light could be here. And other ways, like, there's miracles that we see. Correct. Today or, you know, even... But that takes a little bit of reading into it, because you can also watch the Discovery Channel, and they'll tell you how all the plagues in Egypt happened because of all these natural phenomena that just happened to occur all at the same time. Convenient to the Jews. So convenient. Correct. Which means that you can see, because it's not like obviously obvious, it still takes a little bit of reading into it. By the way, as a rabbi, I am pro calling it God. <laughs> I'm not trying to play devil's advocate. I'm just saying that it's, there's a certain level of faith that's still required, even with what we call a miracle. Now, let's take a look at what one famous Italian Kabbalist um, says about the necessity to move Tzimtzum from a literal to a conceptual phenomenon. Rabbi Yosef Ergas in the Shomer Amunim text 2a. Bobby, please take it away. I'll ask you to do 2a and 2b, which give two different reasons why the Tzimtzum is not literal. Those who wish to understand that Tzimtzum in a literal manner will be led to beliefs that contradict most of the fundamentals of our faith. First of all, we are explicitly taught, to whom do you compare God? And what likeness can you arrange for him? If, however, you take a simsum literally, you are indeed imposing an image on God, an encompassing circle, an empty space, and a straight channel within that space. So he says, first of all, to understand that simsum literally, you're talking about circles, emptiness, and lines. It's a little too corporeal. It's a little too, um, I don't know, too, huh? Tangible. Tangible. Uh, we have to understand this more uh, abstractly or more conceptually than literally. He says on a general level. But really the biggest problem is text to be. Bobby, I'll ask you to read this one as well. Text to be. This is the second problem. Additionally, the Zohar states numerous times that there is no place where he is not. From the highest of, level, of levels to the lowest of levels and in every direction. If you suggest that the stream is literal, you're insinuating that there is a place devoid of him. For in this empty space, only a narrow channel So he says like this, what's the problem with understanding Tzimtzum literally? The problem is, number one, there was at some point in time an empty space of God, a space devoid of God. Well, how does that happen? We, how does that fit with what we know about God, that God is in every space and everywhere? So how does that make sense if there's a space empty? And even after the Kav reemerges, the straight line emerges in that empty space, the implication of a straight line is that it's not filling the entire space. Correct? You have an empty space and then a line in the space. So again, if we imagine, wait, he's, that's the first problem, that we're imagining this physically. But let's imagine it physically. Imagine like an empty space and a beam, a straight line. You ever, sometimes you walk in a room and there's like a ray of light coming in. Right? There's a ray, beautiful ray of light that comes in the room. And it usually is accompanied by a sound. 
Something like this. Ah, uh, no. Right, so the ray of light is coming in, so that ray of light only takes up some of the room, some of the space, but not the entirety of the space, which means that the rest of the space is where God isn't. Well, again, that is a theological problem because theologically, we cannot say, based on other sources, that there's any place where God is not. Y'all with me on this? Which means that... The, hold on one second, one second. Which means that the correct way of understanding Simpson is not that God actually moved out. Not that God actually shrunk. It's not that God actually created an empty space. It's not that God's light, the Kav, is only emanating in one space and leaving lots of areas without God. It's more of a concept than a literal construct. Which means that God is in all the spaces as before. But it's just to us or to the other that reality is not seen. It's like David Copperfield. The Statue of Liberty is still there. We don't see it. It didn't actually move, but we don't see it. It's like the parent giving the illusion of independence to their child while still being in control. I'm not advocating for this, by the way, or not advocating for this. I'm just, I'm, I'm taking a very neutral Switzerland-esque stance on this, right? But it's like giving the appearance of autonomy and independence and control and space while, in fact, never moving out of that space to begin with. Make sense? So where is God? Everywhere. To God, okay, here's another angle on this. To God, there is no symptom. To us, there is a tzimtzum. Does that make sense? I'll give you an example. Tzimtzum, the contraction. To God, God never... God is still in all the places. But we don't see God in all the places, even though he's still there. To give you an example, it's kind of like a riddle. So imagine if you come up with a riddle and then you tell someone else the riddle. Right? So they have no idea what you're talking about. But you see the answer in the riddle clue. Does that make any sense? Yes? You guys know where I'm going with this? Neither do I. I, I thought you all were going to help me figure this out. I'm kidding. Right? So you don't see the darkness. All right. Someone's like, all right, you're in a room. You have nothing with you. And like, how do you get out? There's no windows. There's no doors. You have nothing. It's totally empty. Go. And there's like an answer. I don't know if there is an answer, but there might be an answer to this. And it's like, I have no idea. But the one who came up with this knows the answer. So they have the solution in their head. And even when looking at the riddle, they see the answer. There's no concealment. You guys with me? Whereas to the other side, it's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. This is, this is opaque. This is confusing. Kind of like what I'm doing with you guys now, right? It's confusing. Like, what's going on? I don't even know what's going on. I thought I understood this class. The point is, if this last analogy doesn't work, it's okay. Strike it from the record. The point is that the way we settle this is that simsum lo kipshuto. Simsum is not literal. It's a conceptual concept. God is still there. The audience of the infinite is still there. It's just that we don't see it. And you know what? Perception is as good as, in this context, reality. Yes? Yes, yes, yes? Good. I got out of that riddle. <laughs> without losing too much. Okay, to see this expressed clearly, Natan, please read text number three, page 147. 
Here, the founder of Chabad, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Sheh Zaman of Liadi, uh, describes the non-literal nature of the Tzimtzum. The Tzimtzum does not mean that, God, that God's infinite light departed. God forbid. For in truth, there is no place devoid of Him. This principle is also expressed in the Midrash. Why did God choose to reveal Himself to Moses from within a thorn bush? To teach that there is no place devoid of God's presence, even a thorn bush. Instead, in this context, the meaning of Tzimtzum is that, or Ein Sof, went from a state of revelation to one of concealment without actually departing at all. And that last paragraph says it all. Thank you. The last paragraph, right? What is Tzimtzum? Tzimtzum means that the infinite light went from a state of revelation to concealment. But it didn't go anywhere. It's just not visible. Right? It's like putting on a cloak of invisibility. Do you know that there is a paint like a black paint that they call invisible paint. You, are you guys aware of this? It's oh, epic. There's a, there's a black that's so black that it absorbs all the light. And when you look at it, you almost don't see it. Right? Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. I'm just not going to show up and say that I was that. It's like saying when you were talking before about like how the light gets broken down into different parts, like coming through the stained glass. Yes. It's still right. like that. Like the lights, we can only see that beam of light coming from there. However, it might be broken up. But outside, there's all It's that still light. there. Right. And I think the idea here is that even inside it's still there, but we just can't see it. Mm-hmm. To us, it looks different. Like but it's still there. Right. Exactly. Now, the way Kabbalah describes this is using the analogy we used a few weeks ago. But again, when we did it a few weeks ago, we looked at it kind of on a general perspective, like from the helicopter. Now we're, we're on the ground. Now we're, you know, we're, we're actually going to grapple with this. The analogy that, of course, you remember is Einstein. Remember the analogy of Einstein? Here you have a guy whose mind is so brilliant and it's always active. Right? He, he's not like a guy like Einstein is not someone who says, oh, you know, I figured stuff out. I think I'm good. His mind is constantly questioning and figuring things, coming up with new ideas. So is it infinite? No, it's a human mind. But what other example are we going to use? What analogy are we going to use for the infinite light? We're going to use the infinite light for the infinite light. Thank you very much. We need, a, we need something we can relate to. So the best we can come up with right now, at least, is Einstein's mind, which is not really infinite, but very big. And... We were transitioning from his big mind to teaching, right? He's been asked to step into a high school science class and teach them something. And so now he has to step down his brilliance into this high school lesson. And a few weeks ago, we said that a true Einstein, a true genius, not only has the ability to teach on an advanced level, but he also has the ability to teach on a lower level. And all of that is true. But let's go deeper in this example. Because how does he do it? How He can do it. And he will do it. But how, what's the process? Simpson. Three stages. The exact three stages that we explained before. And by the way, before I do this, I want to tell you, this is not just Einstein. This is you and I in a conversation. This is you and I. This is you writing something down, writing an essay. This is you painting a painting. This is you creating a composition. Whether you're into music, science, literature, the arts, whatever you're into, if you're taking something big and creating something 
finite with definition, you are utilizing the power of tzimtzum, even if you never thought about it in this context. Let's unfold this. So Einstein begins, Einstein, big mind, big ideas, and in his mind, everything is big. But now he's got to, tomorrow he's teaching high school students, he's got to, he needs a lesson plan. So what does he do? Step one is clear his mind. Take everything that's like bubbling over and bubbling out, right? Take it, move it to the side. Blank slate. What am I teaching these kids? We call that symptom, right? Contraction means creating empty space, creating empty, emptying his mind, right? Blank slate. Within that, so step one is, again, stage one is, or ain't sof, the infinite light, i.e. In, a lot of ideas. Second stage is symptom contraction, creating space. So he takes all of his ideas, moves them to the side, and now his mind is a blank slate. What am I going to teach these kids? And in that new space, he will take a kav, a limited idea, from his massive warehouse of ideas, his infinite warehouse of ideas, right? He will take a kav, a single idea, and create a lesson plan. Develop that, of course, right? Build that out, but make a lesson plan from that one idea. Does that make sense? It's kind of like creating a six-week Kabbalah course. There's so much to talk about. What are you going to talk about? Stop. Let's just create six ideas, right? Biyah, Atzilut, Arein Sof, Tohu, Tzimtzum, Ein Sof. Those are the six lessons, right? You, you have all of this. You have in, hundreds and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pages of Kabbalah. How do you teach that in six weeks? 90-minute sessions. Again, it's in every process. You have so many feelings. How do you write that love letter? You have so many brilliant ideas. How do you write that essay? Um, you have so many feelings. What are you going to paint? Right? It's all the same process. You have to clear it out. Conjure up what is it? What is it? What is the limited? What's the focused idea that you wish to convey? And then you work with that. You guys with me on this? Step one, it's big. Step two, you move it away. Step three, you project something finite. Yes? Let's go deeper. Let's go deeper. Again, we're taking a very detailed look at this. So to go deeper, I want to point out a few things. Number one, when the teacher, when Einstein, right, removes his ideas and pushes them away and creates that blank slate, is it that he forgot everything he spoke about? Uh, sorry, spoke about. Is it that he forgot his wisdom? Of course not. He doesn't know his theories anymore? Of course not. His mind is not still brilliant? Of course it is. So what does it mean? He doesn't actually take his brain and create space. You with me on this? It's just that he's not focusing on the big ideas. He's focusing rather on the more limited ideas that the students will be, the high school students will be able to relate to. Remember I told you that symptom is not literal? Like five minutes ago? <laughs> right? Hold on, let me, let me say that again because I feel like I didn't get the reaction that I was thinking. Remember we spoke about a few minutes ago that symptom is not literal? Right? Yes. 
Yeah, oh, right. Yes, absolutely. It's not, it's not like literally God disappears. He's still there. Einstein's brain is still there. His ideas are still there. Even in those, and here's the next level of this, even in the limited idea that he's going to share, I'm like, this is the kav, this is the beam, right? Even that limited idea, Mira, you teach. What age? High school. You're doing this all the time. Mm-hmm. All the time. I am sure without a doubt. You have all these big ideas. You're like, but if I put out everything like that, not only is it too deep for them, but it's too big. It's too expansive. If you do that, they'll be like, I have no idea what happened. Right? Clear everything away, but not really, because it's still there. And then you are emanating specific ideas. Those specific ideas are still connected with the big ideas. After all, where else are they coming from? They're all small ideas of the bigger ideas. And the truth is, a good student, a wise student, eventually could take those ideas and, what's the word I'm looking for? Reconstruct? Is that the word? Uh, Yeah, I mean, that would work. Yeah, well, the the, the good student can... um, Ah, there's a... What, what, what? Yeah. Expand, reverse engineer. Thank you. Who said that? Who said reverse engineer? Thank you, Mark. Look at you. All right, well done. Well done. Good. By the way, we're missing you in person. Just saying. Reverse engineer. The good student can reverse engineer and say, wait a second. This is the idea, but I'm sensing something much bigger. Right? That's like how an idea is like a kernel, like a seed. Right? You plant a seed and something bigger grows. A good idea, a good teacher doesn't just share ideas, but shares seeds of ideas that can then expand and grow way beyond the individual idea that was transmitted. So what's the point? Let's get back to the analogy. So the teacher has all these big ideas. The symptom, the contraction is not literal. (coughs) It's not like Einstein loses his mind, as it were, not that way, but the other way. It's not like his mind is empty. It's not really empty. He's just creating space, internal space, for the emergence of the limited, the limited idea. The idea that, the, that these students on this level, at this age, can understand. So it's not a literal symptom, number one. Number two, even what he gives them, even though it's limited, it's still connected with the infinite. Remember in text one, there is said that the kav comes from where? Let's look back. Look at the third paragraph. He then projected 143. 143. He then, third paragraph, he then projected downward a single straight line from his circular light. You see that? Where does the kav come from? Right? Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and calves are from? The Arainsov. Right? The finite is really tethered to the infinite. And the same thing is true in this teaching example. The finite, the limited idea is still part of the big idea. Let's go even further. The truth is, by the way, if, like, does this all make sense? Yes? Sort of? It'll all make sense. One day. I'm kidding. Today is that one day. So here's the deal. The truth is, and again, we're just going a little bit deeper in this example, that even as Einstein, let's say he was never asked to teach high school. Right? So he's just in his own head, you know, just 
tossing around ideas and, and, and you know, just theorizing and his mind is working, you know, at, at supersonic or hypersonic speed. Great, great. Does his mind contain the finite, the limited idea? Absolutely, right? Within the big ideas are also the smaller, limited ideas, correct? I mean, if he has big ideas, he also has small ideas. However, it's just that when he's in that space of big ideas, what you see or what you feel or what he feels and what he experiences are the big ideas, not the small, finite ideas. The tzimtzum, let me use the language of Kabbalah and you'll see it in the text. Before the Einstein, Einsteinian, Einstonian, Einsteinian, 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 yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Right. Einsteinian, all right. So before the Tzimtzum of Einstein, his bligvul was begile. Oh, I'm sorry for speaking all in Kabbalistic terminology, but it's so much fun. His infinite was revealed and his finite was concealed in his own head. Y'all with me? Before his internal Tzimtzum. Before his lesson planning, before his, oh, I need to teach high school, i gotta, I got to make a plan. Before that, as he is within himself, his mind is operating on a high level, on a big level. Does he have finite ideas? Of course he does. They're including the big ideas or the small ideas. Absolutely. Of course. Where else is it? However, you don't see those small ideas because he's, he's in big mode, big idea mode. Probably better stated. He's in big idea mode, not small idea mode. So the big ideas are revealed. The small ideas are concealed, even though they're there. What does its symptom do? It flips, it reverses which element is revealed and which is concealed. The symptom that he does in this lesson planning is to conceal the big ideas and to reveal the small ideas. Does that make sense? All right. I'm going to get a little chime after this class. Let's, <laughs> joking, or not. Hey, let's take a look at text 4a. Let's take a look at text 4a. Um, Natan, right? Matan. Matan. Oh, so close. Matan. Take it away. Text 4a, 149. Let's do this. And so it's going to be 4a and 4b. Let's do this slowly. And so, again, every word here is gold. All right. Take it away, Matan. The profound concept the teacher understands is incompatible with the student's mental ability. So let's pause here for a moment. Again, he's setting up the example or the parable of the teacher and the student, and he's setting it up that the teacher is, again, it's all human, so it's not literal, but the teacher would be the infinite and the student would be the finite, and that's going to be how we're, and that's the gulf that we're going to try to bri uh, um, bridge with his example. Take it away. Continue, please. Nevertheless, in the teacher's mind, these elements are filled with the profundity of the overall concept, and they therefore remain too deep to deliver to the student. The main obstacle here is that there is no distinction in the teacher's mind between the core of the concept and its less significant elements. Consequently, if the teacher proceeds to transmit this knowledge to the students, the teacher will deliver the full profundity along with less, the less significant components. The students will understand none of it. 
the solution is for the teacher to conceal the entire concept, mentally pushing the whole idea aside to approach it anew. The teacher can now distinguish between the idea's core and the more superficial elements. The teacher can then deliver the transmittable details without flooding those elements with the overwhelming complexity of the core concept. Does it make sense? Yeah, it's kind of what we discussed. Now let's continue with the analog. Right? Not what's the analog? No, we're not like unplugging. No, analog here would be that was the parable. So what's the parable teaching us about what's going on on high? So let's read this. Matam, please read text 4B as well. Page 152. The above parable allows us to appreciate the concept of Tzimtzum. Before the Tzimtzum, God's ability to express finite divinity was part and parcel of his prevailing infinity. Because the entire theme of Orange Soap before the Tzimtzum is to reflect the infinite capacity of God's essence and to resemble it. It seems to enable the separation of these two powers of expression. Thank you. And this is so beautiful and so powerful. Our Ein Sof infinite light means, as we said in lesson two, or let maybe no, lesson three, two or three, one of those, the infinite light our Ein Sof means that God has the ability to both be infinite and be finite. But before that symptom, those two abilities are intertwined, they're intermeshed with each other. That Simpson causes the distinction between these two. Again, in Einstein's mind, there are big ideas and smaller ideas. But as he exists within his own mind, even the small ideas are lumped into the big ideas. They're not separated out. It's only when he needs to now teach high school students that he has to say, well, what, one second, I have to now separate out the big from the small ideas and figure out what exactly I'm going to teach in a very compact very tight lesson that makes sense to the student. Therefore, the same thing is not therefore, but the same thing is true on high, that the infinite light contains both capacities of bligvul and gvul, which means uh, um, uh, infinite and finite, that simsum causes these two intertwined abilities or elements to be separated. God conceals the infinite and reveals the finite, and that creates the foundation of our finite reality. <laughs> All right. Cheers. L'chaim. Okay. Yes? Great. Now, oh, look at this. Now you thought you understood this. However, I need to, uh, I need to, uh, we need to go deeper. Um, what we just explained and described was the Tzimtzum Harishon, the original, or I guess what the kids would call today, the OG Tzimtzum. <laughs> OG Tzimtzum, right? That's the original Tzimtzum between the Arain Sof, the infinite, and everything else that's finite. So what happens? So the Tzimtzum is, it's not really God hiding, oh, sorry, it's not really God moving away and creating space. It's conceptually that's happening, separating out the infinite from the finite, and projecting finite from there down. Great. However, however, there, there is another transition that needs to happen. Not only between the infinite light and the worlds of Atsilut and below, but between the world of Atsilut and the lower three worlds, there's also a gulf. Let me say that again. Between the infinite divine energy and finite creation, there's a tzimtzum intervening. 
That's how you go from infinite to finite. Likewise, from the world of Atsilut, which is a finite world, but a world of godliness, to the worlds of Berea, Yetzirah, and Asiya. In other words, between lesson two and lesson one, there is another gulf, there's another gap and transition. If you look on this chart, on this map, you'll see it, it's written right there. It looks like um, construction lines. I don't know, maybe not construction lines. They would be slanted. You see those vertical red lines right here? You see what it says on the left, the very left side? Si um, what is it? Parsa. It's a parsa. I'm glad you asked. I'm so glad you guys asked that question. What's a parsa? I would ask you what's not a parsa. I'm kidding. What's a parsa? Parsa means curtain. A curtain. There's a tzimtzum between Ein Sof, between the infinite and the finite, but within the finite reality, between the world of Atzilot, which is the world of godliness, to the worlds of separation, Ria, Yetzir, and Asiyah are considered worlds of separation, between the world of godliness and the world of separation, there's something called the parsa. What's a parsa? Text number five. Um, text number five. Faith, please read this one, text five, page one. 53, we have two illustrations of what a parsa is. Other sources explain further that this parsha is akin to a parable's word, to a parable's words, which entirely conceal the profound message of the animal. For example, consider the parable cited by King Solomon. He vested supernal secrets in mundane ideas that hide the mystical truths. One who reads these parables gains a mere glimmer that is incomparable to the core supernal secrets. Thank you. Now let me explain that in English. <laughs> what are we saying? He gives two understandings, <coughs> sorry, two examples or two illustrations of what a parsa is and as it distinguishes from what we've been talking about until now, which is a tzimtzum. Again, both tzimtzum and parsa are very generally doing the same thing, which is creating a transition between two vastly different entities, between the Arain Sof, the infinite light and finite creation, well, that's very different. We have a symptom in between that kind of sorts that out and ma it makes that transition. But also within finite reality, between a world that's aligned with God and worlds that are now feeling themselves as separate from God, that's also, there's also a divide there. What is that divide? The parser. What's the parser? Two, two illustrations. Number one, and both are, are instructive. Number one. I'm going to give you two, a tale of two curtains. You ready? Two types of curtains. Imagine you have, um, I think they call them like blackout curtains. Very opaque, black and opaque. They allow zero light to come in. Okay, so you have a very powerful light source, but then you have these blackout curtains in front and there's no zero light coming through. But imagine, imagine if you part the curtains a little bit and now... Right, the light is not flooding in, but a, a narrow beam of light is coming in between the divide and the curtain. Yes? That is like the tzimtzum. You have the broad infinite light, but instead of that 
shining everywhere. Now you have a very narrow beam. So instead of Einstein, right, in the teacher example, instead of Einstein, you know, his mind projecting everywhere, he now has a very specific lesson plan. He's going to cover, you know, gravity for high school students, very narrow concept. He's not going to give, you know, the general or specific uh, theories of relativity. He's going to give very narrow definitions and that the students can understand. Great. That's like the curtain. That's the Simpson. But imagine another type of curtain. Not a curtain that parts and allows the light to come, the original light to come through, but in a narrow, a narrow amount of the original light, the cob from the original circle. No. Imagine the curtain is not opaque. Imagine the curtain is not fully opaque, but the curtain is covering the entire source of light. And that light is flowing through, kind of, Bobby, this is kind of what you were saying about the stained glass. Imagine the light is now coming through this curtain, this screen, and as it comes through and floods on the other side, it looks different than it looks on the other side. Right? On that side, it looks one way, but on this side, on the other side of the curtain, it now looks different. It doesn't look smaller. It looks different. The tzimtzum makes the infinite smaller. It doesn't make it, but that's, right, that's what happens. Infinite becomes finite. The parsa makes the light look different, look separate. Originally, godly. Now, other. That's what the parsa does. The second illustration he gives is of a parable. What's a parable? And he quotes, he, he, he illustrates his parable with a parable of King Solomon. Let me, let, let, let me work with that. King Solomon wrote a book that is very interesting. Um, it's called Song of Songs. Do you all know what Song of Songs talks about? It is a very passionate love story between a man and a woman. It tells a story of a guy and a girl, and they fall in love. But when he's excited about her, she's not available. When she's excited about him, he's not available. What does it sound like? Classic Hollywood rom-com, right? Classic story. They meet, but she's in a relationship. Oh, man. And then she's available, but he's in a relationship. Um, and it ends in an airport, right? That's how it always ends? <laughs> Correct? I could write this stuff. I know, I know. I am writing. By the way, anybody in Hollywood? I have a, my uh, screenplay. Kidding. Okay, yeah, so that's, that's how rom-coms work. So King Solomon writes a very passionate romance story called Song of Songs. Here's the kicker. It's canonized as one of the 24 holy books of Jewish scripture. Question is, who was the editor? Like, who was, who was involved in that selection process? Like, how did that make it in? If all the other books of Torah are like holy books, this one, this one is like, I don't know. It doesn't seem like it belongs in the, in the canon of holy books. But the way we understand King Solomon's Song of Songs is that it's not meant to be taken literally. The entire story is a parable of us and God. How God loves us and we love God, but sometimes they don't match up. Right? Sometimes, historically also, right, God was into us. And what were we doing? We were dancing the whole around the golden calf. And then we get excited about God and it seems like God's not around. Like, where's God? 
Like we're all inspired and we're, we don't see God. Why is all this negative stuff happening? So that's the drama. All of which is to say that the, the book Song of Songs, Shir Hashirim, is a very long parable. What's the challenge with the parable? The challenge is as follows. You're not teaching the idea. You're taking the idea, putting it into something else, and teaching that or presenting that. You with me? You're not presenting the idea. You're not taking an idea, a big idea and making it smaller. You're taking an idea and couching it in otherness and presenting the otherness and hoping that that person is going to, as we said before, but differently, reverse engineer back to the original idea. This is not taking big and making it small. This is taking something and dropping it in a completely different space. This is why the parsa is the, is the term of choice to describe the transition between the world of Atzilut. Stop. Orein Sof is the infinite light. So to go from infinite to finite, we already talked about that was the first. How long is this class? <laughs> Hour and 10 minutes of this class. That transition. I'm now trying to give you a brief understanding of the transition within the finite creation between Atzilut, the first world, and the lower three worlds. The transition between one and three is between godly and other. And that is described, the, the, the example that's used is a curtain. Curtain either that screens the light so that the light coming through the other side looks different, or a parable where you take an idea and, putting it, and put it into something that looks, feels, and makes sense in a different way. Sure. Of a parsa? Sure, I just gave you an example. Song of Songs. He's telling the story of, he's telling our story, but he's telling the story utilizing the, uh, uh, he's, telling the, the, he's telling a spiritual story couched in romance. So you can read that and think of it as a romance novel, like, oh, this is an interesting story between a guy and a girl. Like, that's how you can read it. So the parsa creates a separation in the appearance of an other. You start off with something godly, and now it's gone in a different direction, or seemingly in a different direction. And you have to almost read it as, ah, wait a second, behind this idea is really something divine, but it looks and feels different. That's the example of how you go from Atzilut, which is a world of godliness, into the worlds of Bria, Yitzira, and Asiya, which are worlds of separation. So again, there's two, there's two separations. One is going from big to small, from infinite to finite, and the other one is, the other um, bridge is to go from godly to other. And that's the power, so that's the curtain. Okay, let's draw some... Yes? Yes. Good question. Excellent question. Beautiful. Excellent question. Okay, so the question on the table is, if it's called Simpson Harishon, the first Simpson, that implies a sequel. Where is the sequel? Is the sequel another Simpson that we haven't talked about today? Because I'm trying to hold some Simpson cards in my own pocket and not share all my cards with you. Or is the Parsa considered that Simpson, another form of Simpson, but with a different name? And the answer is both. There are many more Simpsonim because there are many more levels that we haven't talked about. So there are many more tzimtzumim 
simtumim, contractions, as well as generally the parasa could also be considered to be a tzimtzum. Some areas of Kabbalah will say that between each world there's a tzimtzum. Even though more precisely we call it a parasa, but tzimtzum can also be a, a less precise collective term for that type of transition. For a, sorry, for a transition. Okay, I want to spend the next um, 15 minutes. This is perfect. I want to now take what we learned today and apply it to our lives. And hopefully the ideal here is to get some very practical takeaways from our conversation tonight. Because again, it's one thing to learn this stuff. It's upside down. Who would even know? I'm kidding. It's one thing to learn this stuff on this side of the column, but it's also very impactful to understand how this applies to our side of the column in our life and in our experience. So here we go. <coughs> how does symptom Simtsum show up for us. Have you ever been in a meeting where someone dominated the conversation and didn't let anyone share their ideas? Have you ever been in a meeting where you try to share your idea and someone shot it down through sheer force and aggression? Yeah? Someone's like, no, that's never going to work. And you're like, can we at least discuss it? No. No. If you've experienced any of, the, any of these, they're kind of the same thing. Um, but if you've experienced this, then you have felt what it's like to encounter a person who is not practicing symptom. What does it look like when the Aryan Sof is unchecked, it spreads everywhere, and there's no space for anything else. That's why we needed symptom originally, right? Because the Aryan self, the infinite light, was everywhere. Nothing else can exist. Sometimes you meet a person, and it's like they want to take over all the space. And there's, it's like, well, where, where do I go? No, 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 you don't get to be, right? I'm going to take over the space. It's like the guy in the date that talks about himself for three hours. And after three hours, he says, enough about me. So what do you think about me? Shkoyach. Thank you very much. It's like, ha, huh, I thought I was going to get some, some airtime. Nope, nope, you're not. You can still talk, but about me. I mean, you could talk, but it's still about me. So the idea here is that simtsum is a highly necessary component of interpersonal relationships, i.e., giving space for others, whether it's in a conversation, which I'm not modeling a lot tonight, sorry, right? Right, right, giving space for the other to share their perspective and ideas, and a relationship to allow the other to be comfortable being who they are and not feeling like they have to conform to who you are, right? Or whether it's in any area of, or activity, interpersonally, tzimtzum means, tzim, the practice of tzimtzum is to right, shrink a little bit, make yourself a little bit smaller to allow a little bit more space for the other, a highly necessary quality of human behavior. I'm going to read a few texts here. Text 6a. Take a, I love this text and the story that it presents. Listen to this. Those who are self-obsessed and narcissistic, by the way, this doesn't mean like clinically narcissistic, it just means you know, self-absorbed, become engrossed in their desires and wishes 
and completely forget about God. That's the spiritual. We'll get back to that in a second. Let's talk about interpersonal relationships. Similarly, their self-obsession precludes loving others. Their self-love generates divisiveness because it doesn't allow them to tolerate others. They think that whatever someone else says or does is directed against them. You ever meet someone who thinks the world is out to get them? And it's like, well, one second. Who are you that everyone hates? (laughs) Who do you think you are that you're you're an enemy? Right? It's like... (laughs) Don't, no one's thinking that much about you, but like in your mind, everything's, everything's about you. There was an incident that well illustrates this point. This is very powerful. This is a, this is a real story. Um, a fellow who happened to be a tremendous scholar and well-versed in Torah once had a private audience known as a yechidot with my great-grandfather, Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Lubavitch. So this was, just, just clarifying, um, this text was authored by the previous Chabad Rebbe who passed away in 1950, and he's talking about his great-grandfather, who was the third of the Chabad Rebbe's. Okay, here we go. Re- so now, going back in time to this meeting between the scholar and his spiritual mentor. Rebbe, he explained, the others are stepping all over me in the study hall. They do not appreciate what I have to say. They do not behave properly toward me. And they do, do, and they do almost the exact opposite of my opinion. The holy Rebbe replied, your ego expands throughout the entire study hall. Wherever anyone steps, it's bound to be on you. <laughs> Basically telling you, like, where else? He's like, they're all stepping all over me. It's like, where do you want them to step? You haven't let them any space. Because you always have an opinion about everything. So if anyone has any opinion, then it's contrary to your opinion. Because <laughs> you have opinion about everything. And you're, and you're pushing your stuff on everyone. So you need a little symptom. What's Simpson? Simpson is contraction, right? Take it easy. Allow other people to have their perspectives. Allow other people to have their opinions. And you know what? If you, if you contract into your space, guess what? They won't step on you anymore. Why? Because they have their own space to step. So this is a powerful idea. By the way, the Rebbe, our Rebbe, um, expressed, uh, pointed out a very interesting detail in the story. We're not talking about some egomania, although I maybe mean, we're not talking about some some Joe Schmo from the street. This guy was a Torah scholar, and he's in a private meeting with his spiritual mentor. And still, what's he thinking about? His ego. That's how dangerous ego can be. Ego can no one's immune to ego. I would say, on the contrary, someone who has um, you know who is more advanced in whatever field they're in, whether it's Torah study or anything else they are more susceptible to, to, narcissi- to, to, you know, to self-aggrandizement. They're more susceptible to hubris and to feeling you know, a, a, a bloated or inflated um, self-worth. And it's more dangerous. Um, the Rebbe points this out in text 6b. I'm going to read this quickly. You will notice that the above story mentions that the individual felt like people were stepping all over him in the study hall. This is a highly instructive detail because a hall designated for Torah study is considered a miniature holy temple. Divinity is more acutely present and perceptible in a place filled with Torah study, similar to the presence of divinity within the holy temple. Despite that, this individual succeeded in maintaining a bloated ego even in this holy place. This detail of the story was included to underscore that knowledge alone without working on self-refinement is woefully uh, insufficient, so much so that one's ego will infiltrate even a miniature sanctuary. This proves the indispensability of avoda, the internal work of character refinement. You can know 
that you need to work on something. But until you do the work, it ain't done. That's the way life is. You can know the value of humility and giving space, but it's actual avodah. You've got to do the work of literally shrinking a little bit and giving others space. This is true, and this is what it means to be a healthy individual and human being amongst other people, which is the idea of contracting one's ego. So we learned today, just to contextualize what we're saying now, we learned today, today's conversation was about simsum and how God contracts, not literally, but you know, contracts to make space for us. And the lesson that we're drawing from this is that we ought to do the same for others. Just like God contracts to make space for us, we ought to contract and make space for others in our lives. And if that's true for others, how much more so is that true for God? Right? The direct, the direct uh, um, reciprocation would be, just like God made space for us, we should also make space for God. Text 7. Text 7. Take a look. Reciprocation is a natural response. God set aside, figuratively speaking, His great infinite light and concealed it. He did this due to His love for us, to raise us up to Him, for love induces one to restrict oneself for another. When we reflect on this deeply, our souls will spontaneously be ignited to reciprocate. We will feel motivated to forsake everything in order to cleave to Him. Now that's, that's, oh, that's very big language. What that means in a very practical level is as follows. How often do we tell ourselves, I would love to do something spiritual today, but I don't have the time. It's like, I would love to pray in the morning, to do like a few minutes of, of daily prayer, in the, like morning prayer, and to like start my day off with a little bit of meditation and study and prayer and, you know, and, 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 and focus, but I got, I got to go to work. I got to go to work. It's like, wait a second, hold on. Do you know what God did for us? Let's, let's be more direct. We'll talk about a, a general you, no, no one specifically. You know what God did for you? God contracted his infinite light to create space for you. You don't have five minutes for God? <laughs> you know what God did for you to give you space, right? So we should reciprocate for God. So again, we have two, two lessons. It's all about creating space by, you know, by, by shrinking and creating space, whether it's for others, whether it's for God. That's all lesson one. Lesson two. Takeaway lesson number two. <clears throat> In order for, let me, let me retry that. In the architecture of creation, the way we learned this today, first comes the tzimtzum, the contraction, the darkness. Then comes the light, the creation, the limited creation that's formed from the cow, from that, from that small, limited amount of light. But first darkness, then light. This becomes a recurring pattern in the universe. First darkness, then light. Think about Jewish time. Jewish time is different than I believe any other form of time. How is Jewish time different? When does the Jewish day begin? At night. At night. Right? Vayi Erev, Vayi Boker, Yom Echad. It was evening and it was morning one day. The unit of a day in the Bible, in the Torah, is described as being composed of an evening and a morning. Not a morning and an evening, not a, a day, not a night, but first an evening, first darkness and then light. <coughs> to that, together, that constitutes a day. Why is that? 
text, I'm not going to read this inside, text 8a tells us the reason why the day, the unit of a day, is composed of first night and then light is because that's the way creation unfolded. First tzimtzum and then revelation of creation. First concealment, first darkness, then light. That is the way all of this was created. And that's mirrored in the very construct of time, of days. How we mark time, we mark time in the same way. Darkness and then light. But where it gets really fascinating and where it gets really, I think, resonant is when we think about how this manifests in the world and in our lives. And that is, and we all know this truth, that great breakthroughs, the greatest breakthroughs happen as a result of darkness and challenge. The greatest breakthroughs in our lives likely didn't happen when we were lying on the beach and enjoying the sun. They likely happened when we were working through a challenge, working on a problem, trying to solve something or in a difficult spot because we know this truth of life. We know this truth yeah, of life. And that is the greatest light is born of darkness preceding it, right? In, in the language, you know, um, using some English uh, idioms, no pain, no gain, right? What else is there? No pain, no gain. I pumped you up. No, that's a different, it's a different idiom. Um, <laughs> Always darkness before the dawn. Right? These are before the birth. There's the, the pain of labor. It's always like that. It's always like that. Now, we'll talk about how, how we, uh, you know, what we feel about that. How we feel about that is another conversation. And we'll I'll, I'll, I'll actually talk about that soon. But this is a truth, is that darkness precedes light. And so, when we find ourselves in a, in a space of darkness, it behooves us to remember the pattern of existence or the architecture of creation. If there's darkness, then we know one thing. There's got to be light coming from here somewhere. There's got to be light. There was once a, a politician from Israel that met with the Rebbe after a very dark moment in Israel's history, going back several decades. And this politician told the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Brooklyn, New York, he said to him, that the, the feeling on the ground in Israel is everyone is asking, why? Why did this happen? Why did this calamity, why did this terror, why is it happening? And the Rebbe said that's not a Jewish question. In Judaism, we don't ask why. We ask, what now? We don't ask why. We're never gonna, you're never going to get a good answer for why. Or why do bad things happen to good people? There's no answer. If you're God, maybe you'll understand. Otherwise, we're not going to have an answer to that. But the relevant question is not why. The relevant question is, what now? What do we do? How are we the Kav following the Tzimtzum? Are you with me on that, on the terminology? How can we be the Kav, that ray of light that shines from and through and because of that dark space? That's not justifying the darkness. That's not celebrating the darkness. That's not propping up the darkness, saying we need darkness. We're not running toward the darkness. But the darkness is here. The only question is, how can we generate the light right now from this darkness? What can we do to bring more light into a dark space? Because that is the pattern. First darkness, then light. 
And if we don't see the light, then we have to create it. So, whether it's on an individual level or on a collective level, if you find ourselves in a difficult spot individually, God forbid, going through a challenge, going through a, a particular pain point, to recognize that the pattern of creation is first darkness, then light, gives us the hope and gives us the motivation to achieve and to realize that light and not get stuck in the darkness. Because if we think that the story ends, the book closes with darkness, right? then that might be a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we believe and we know that the story goes beyond the darkness into the emergence of light, after Tzimtzum, there is Gilui. After darkness, there is light. If we know that, then we're not going to stop turning the pages until we get to that light. And if in the larger world there seems to be so much darkness looming, then the only question we need to ask ourselves is, how can I be a light right now to myself, my family, my community, my people, my world, etc.? How can I be that light? I want to conclude with the following. <clears throat> Even though this is the pattern, it doesn't mean that we have to like this pattern. And this we learn from none other than Moses himself. So God appoints Moses. We read before about God appearing to Moses at the, at the burning bush, at, the, at a thorn bush. God appears to Moses and says to Moses that I am choosing you to lead the people out of Egypt. Go to Pharaoh and tell him that I said, let my people go. And Moses does so. He goes to Pharaoh with his brother Aaron. He says, so says the God of the Israelites, let my people go. What does Pharaoh say? Help me out here, guys. What does Pharaoh say? No. I don't know God. I don't know who you're talking about. Who's God? God says, let, I don't know who that is. Number one. Number two, ain't going to happen. And then he says something else. What does he say? You guys remember the story? It's the fact that you guys are talking about getting out means that you have way too much time in your hands. He says, so now the slavery is going to get even harsher. And instead of Egypt providing the bricks for the buildings, y'all are going to have to make it yourselves with the same quotas as before. And so now the people are really suffering. What does Moses do? He turns to God. This is, the end of the, this is at the end of the Torah portion of Shemot, the first portion of Exodus. He turns to God and Moses, the great Moses says, Lama hareota lama why are you mistreating this people? Why are you harming? Why are you wronging this people? From the moment you sent me on this mission, things have gotten worse. And God responds, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's about to get amazing. Just hold on for the ride. And so my question is, did Moses not know that? Did he not know this secret or this truth of life? That there's always darkness before the light and that the greater the darkness, the greater the light? Did he, not, did he not know this truth that we know in our own lives? That when doors close, it only means that something bigger and better is about to open. And it couldn't have opened had the door not closed. We know this. We've all experienced this. He didn't know this. God tells him, well, this is the pattern. Here's what I believe. Moses knew this. But he also knew something else. He knew that this pattern only exists because God created this pattern. The same God that created the pattern of first darkness, then light, could also create a new reality. 
a reality in which you can have immense light without the darkness. And so Moses was asking for another reality, another paradigm, where you don't need the pain to have the gain, where you don't need the darkness to have the light, where you can have blinding, beautiful light without the precedence or the preceding darkness. This is what Moses was asking of God. And the truth is, this is what each of us ought to be praying to God every single day. We know the system. We know that somehow through the darkness there will be light. And we know that it doesn't, doesn't justify the darkness, but it's still our task to, from the darkness, emerge to light. But we don't like this game. We don't like this. This doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to have to go through pain to find something, to achieve something amazing. It doesn't feel good. And because you are God, you can create and unleash a new paradigm, a paradigm in which there does not need to be difficulty or challenge preceding the breakthrough. And we pray this, and we ought to pray this every single day, pray to God, and ask God to once and for all end this paradigm, end this system, and bring what we call in Judaism, Mashiach. What is Mashiach? It's a time when there is no more darkness, and there is only light, and the greatest light. Not with any darkness, not through any darkness, but just pure beauty and light and blessing. And so, we'll just conclude and we'll get to questions. And so, my blessing and my prayer, like Moses 3,000 years ago, let us in our own hearts and minds and in our own words and our own, at our own time, let us pray, request, and even demand of God to end this reality, to end this time in which there is pain and there is suffering and there's darkness and there's loss and there's suffering. Let, the, let all of this end. And if there needs to be a great light, God, figure out how to give the great light without the great pain. Let us say, Amen. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for Lesson 5 called The Great Concealment. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope this resonated for you. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, a quick, uh, a quick note about next week. Next week is lesson number six. Lesson number six is the final lesson. This was the penultimate lesson. You know what penultimate means, right? Second to last. I always thought penultimate means the ultimate, but I was wrong. Anyway, so this was the second to last class. The final lesson. We look at, in the final lesson, we look at the essence, not the light of the Ain Sof. We look at the Ain Sof himself or itself. We look at the core essence of the divine self. Who and what is God? And at the same time, we're going to look at the origins of human ego. We've talked a lot about ego. We talked about ego today. Um, what are the origins of human ego? Where does it come from? Uh, we'll discover in the context of, in the process of next week's class, we're going we're gonna to discover where the path of self, where the power of self-restoration comes from, which we know as tshuva, and we'll also discover why, in fact, God is an atheist. Next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. <laughs> the grand finale, you do not want to miss this. Thank you very much for joining me tonight. Lila Tov.
And may the uh, teaching of Kabbalah inspire all of us. Thank you, thank you, thank you.